we've been talking about the subject of the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. But we've not relegated the discussion to speaking in tongues because we've also talked about the other spiritual gifts that God gives us. Chapter 14 is not just about speaking in tongues, though the subject matter is a bit reactive. The church at Corinth had a lot of chaos going on, and in the midst of chaos, the gift of tongues was being misused and abused. And Paul does something interesting. He does not condemn. He actually celebrates the spiritual gift of tongues. And so we tried to do that over the last few weeks as well to match the text because we want to be people who submit to the Word of God. How do we even understand this subject? I've been walking you through some rules that will guide us. First of all, we want to make sure that we lead with love and that as we lead with love, we want to prioritize clarity. Always love one another and always look for a clear word from God. The first example of the gift of tongues is not in Corinth. It's in the book of Acts. And it happened on the day that the Holy Spirit fell on the church. And something miraculous took place. Everyone heard the gospel, heard the celebration of Christ and his love in their own language. Acts chapter 2 verses 4 through 6. And they, speaking of the church, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So right then is one of the cues we have in understanding the spiritual gift of tongues. It is to bring people into knowledge of the gospel. It is to cross language barriers and cultural barriers. It is to supersede the things that normally separate people. One of the things that separates communication most elementary is different languages. We know this from the Tower of Babel. When the People of the early years of creation began disobeying God and attempting to centralize themselves. When God says, be fruitful and multiply and spread out over the earth, he reversed Babel with Babel. And so Calvary reverses Babel. Babel, in other words, the finished work of Christ brings people together under grace where the curse of sin separated people in confusion. So we've been defining every week the same way, the gift of tongues. I want you to understand what it is. The gift of tongues is the supernatural ability. It's a gift to speak a language previously unknown to the person speaking. Speaking your own language that you learned as a child is not a gift. That's just common sense. In order to communicate the message of the gospel and or anything that edifies the church and aligns with the word of God. If a tongue is ever spoken under the spiritual leadership of the Holy Spirit and those around don't understand, it must require interpretation. This is what Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians and this is what we see in the book of Acts where people were hearing it and they were understanding it in their own tongue, in their own language. So that's the gift of tongues. Now, the interesting thing about the gift of tongues is that in Corinth, it, along with some other things, were being done in a chaotic way. Now, when I say that, one of the temptations is, is to say, well, Pastor, should we gut church of enthusiasm, of passion, 
of excitement, of shouting, of praising? I mean, I mean, should we come in and set somberly in some predetermined order of worship, never having the freedom to express what the Lord presses on our hearts? I think not. I don't find that in Scripture. Open up the Bible to the book of Psalms, and you'll see people celebrating before the Lord, shouting before the Lord, passionate before the Lord, lifting up holy hands before the Lord. Our expressiveness is usually a reflection of that which we adore. I was thinking about this this week and trying to nail down how I could illustrate to you what I mean. I don't know if you know this, but we're only 68 days away from high school football starting. 68. Not, not that I'm counting. 68. And, and a few weeks after high school football start, college football starts. And, and, and when, you, when you attend a game, whether it be your local community or, 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 or you go down to Columbia or over to Clemson and you attend a, a college football game, one of the things you notice is the, the beautiful marriage of passion and enthusiasm with order and organization. In other words, you can go into a small high school stadium or a large Division I college stadium and you'll hear shouting and you'll hear chanting and clapping and cheering. But there's also a team, and they come out in order, and they get warmed up, and they go through drills. And if you look up in the press box, you'll see trained men who've given their life to the X's and O's of football, and their sheets and data beyond anything you can ever imagine if you don't have any knowledge of football, the analysis that goes on in game time decisions. There's a third party of officials who are orchestrating the executing of the game. And perhaps one of the moments that represents enthusiasm and passion, yet order and symmetry is the last thing to happen before kickoff. What's the last thing to happen? Everybody gets real excited when the team takes the field. L let me show you what I mean. Now, now, here's the deal. That looks chaotic, but did you notice how everybody was cheering for the same thing and every member of the team was running in the same direction? So, so if that's what church should look like, here's Corinth. It's time for the best thing I saw this week. This peewee football game down in Missouri got started in a hilarious way. Just watching it through is pure <laughs> comedy. We're going to break it down for you, though. This kid gets taken down by the grass monster on the left. He almost gets trampled. Then it's chaos. Kids right, meet at the, the banner and knock into each other. Parents and coach. cheerleaders get knocked out. But here's the best part. Look at the coach. He's going to take his hat off and just throw it out of frustration. So... So that's the Apostle Paul reacting to Corinth's worship services. Nobody's running in the same direction. Everybody's saying different things. There's no order. And so when we come into worship, there must be an order in worship. 
In fact, as long as I grew up in churches, as many years as I spent on the cradle row and then in services, one of the things you get handed in any traditional church by an elderly man in the vestibule is a bulletin. And the bulletin has a picture that's pre-printed, and when you open it, on the left is the order of service. Now, on the right are prayer requests and the menu for Wednesday night. But on the left is the order of service. And man, I'm telling you, there are some churches you have to have a business meeting to get rid of the order of service. And while we don't hand out printed material much anymore, we're pretty much paperless because of economy and stewardship, there is a detailed order of service. It is to the second. There are people up behind you that you don't see. There are folks backstage who are watching every moment and every second. There are people monitoring the live feed and watching the online feed. There are people who've been working and rehearsing while you were doing life in this room this week. There were people rehearsing every song and making sure every note was sang correctly. Why? Because we want to honor the Lord, and the Lord is a God of order. And so the conclusion of this chapter, while it does speak to tongues, really speaks to worship in general. And at the conclusion of the sermon, I'm going to ask you how ordered your life is. I don't mean absent of passion or emotion, but I mean ordered in that there is a desire to establish a rhythm of worship as you walk with the Lord. Let me show you what I mean. Look in your copy of God's Word. Read along with me silently as I read aloud. What then, brothers, verse 26, what then? He's bringing it to a conclusion. When you come together, he's talking about corporate worship. Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Before we go further, let me just describe it this way. In relationship to a worship order, here is a word about words in worship. Words matter. Is it not what we do here? In other words, from the moment you walked in the room, you've been hearing and seeing words. I'm using words. You're using your mind and your ear to listen to my words. In our second service, our individuals who are hearing impaired will have the gift of sign language made available for them, but that sign merely represents words. Words represent ideas. Ideas carry truth into our heart, and it is the truth of God's Word that changes us. It's why Christians believe so passionately in the Word of God. It's why Christian missions organizations quickly try to translate the Bible into any language they engage and encounter. 
Right now, in this moment, you're listening to my words. You're looking at some basic words from the outline of the sermon. And you're looking at me, and I'm physically holding the word. And there's a reason I hold it when I preach. I don't lay it down on a bistro table and walk away from it. It's always right here in front of you. So we are people who are high on words. Any service devoted to Christ will be a service that involves the use of words. Think about how John identifies Jesus. He is the word, the logos of God. He is the physical manifestation of all that who God is made available to us. You ever wondered why Jesus is called the Word of God? Well, I don't have the ability to get into your mind or your heart. But if you walk up to me and you say, Pastor, I love you, or Pastor, I'm praying for you, or Pastor, how are you? Or if I walk up to you and say, I'm praying for you, or how are you doing? What I'm doing is I'm taking what's on the inside, a concern, empathy, compassion, love, and I'm manifesting it on the outside. I'm speaking it, not into existence. It already existed in me. If I express my love for you, that's in here. But I take my love for you and translate it into your life through the vehicle of words. Now, surely words aren't the only way we show love, and we recognize that serving people with our hands, that honoring people with our lives matters. But ultimately, if I need to know who you are, what you're about, or what you're feeling, I will come to you and I will say, would you please share with me what is on your heart? And the way you make that known to me is through the gift of words, the gift of language. So when God, who is infinitely mysterious and great and mighty, chose to manifest all who he is to us, John said, that's the word of God in flesh. They could sit with him and talk with him and eat with him and weep with him and cry with him and laugh with him. And so Jesus then is the full manifestation physically, visibly, verbally, audibly of the great God of heaven. That's why he's the word of God. So we are people of the word. And so what Paul does is he says, let me give you a word about all words spoken in worship, whether they be words of teaching, revelation, prophecy, uh, uh, words of a tongue, words sang. And I don't believe the list in verse 26 is exhaustive. We see other lists in the Bible of different things that were happening. And one of the struggles we have is that you and I are in a very established church with an existing canon. The scripture is codified, it's finished, it's complete. We know that, it's been that way for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But of course, this was a first century church. This would have been a house church. This would have been a more informal setting. I, I liken Corinth to what you might experience in a church planted among a first generation group of Christians. And you can imagine them gathering together around the word and there are different levels of understanding and different gifts that are being manifested in and of themselves. Right now, on this campus, you may assume one man is using his gifts to bless the church. Well, in this setting, you, you might argue that, but actually that's not true. Right now, there are hundreds of people all over the campus doing lots of different things with their gifts, serving your children and your students. There are adults in small groups sitting under other men and women with the gift of teaching who are happening. So when we come to a modern church, especially a large church, Sometimes it can be hard to connect the dots. But go back in your mind 
to a small church plant you attended or a tiny country church you grew up in, a Wednesday night prayer meeting, a Sunday night Bible study. People are gathered around the Word and they're sharing openly. It's probably a better picture of what's happening here. And in doing what he does, Paul lays out first the rules. Look at the rules in verse 26. When you come together, each one has a hymn and a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, that all things be done for the building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two, at most three. That in and of itself completely contradicts what was happening in Corinth and what is often happening in churches that abuse or misuse the gift of tongues, where there is random shouting of unrecognizable utterances and no pause in the service to give an interpretation. Paul says one, two, no more than three, and there should be order to it. And, and then what we find is it continues beginning in verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another setting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace. So, so we see right out of the gates, interpretation of the word matters, explanation of the word matters, and then the church agreeing, affirming that a word from any human given in worship aligns itself with God's truth. As your pastor, I do not speak in errant or infallible words because I'm neither. I'm full of error and sin. I can make mistakes, misspeak, mispronounce, and be misguided. Even in my own Christian experience as a 45-year-old man, there are things I feel differently about in my convictions than I did when I was 25. And there were things when I was 25 that I did not understand fully when I was 15. I am a human being fully capable of making mistakes. So it is the church is responsibility to make sure any person who communicates anything in an authoritative nature that the content of his or her words is weighed against does this line up with the truth of God's word. In the early church, there were some filters they poured things through. One historian noted seven they would ask of any teaching that came along, does this match the traditions of Jesus before they had the words of Jesus written, before Matthew wrote Matthew, before Mark wrote Mark, before Luke wrote Luke, before John wrote John, the traditions of Jesus, the conversations of Jesus were carried on through oral communication. Does this match that? Does it align with Scripture? Notice I've underlined that. I'll come back in a moment. Does it align with the apostles' teaching, those men who were called out by God to serve as the forefathers of the church? Does it display sacrificial love? Does it promote the good of the community? Does it cause others to stumble? And finally, does this word lead others to trust in Christ as Savior? The early church was especially vulnerable to false teaching because they did not have the privilege of what you and I have. We have the finished Word of God, which is why I've underlined and asterisked that. 
We know that all of Jesus' traditions are captured here that God wanted for us to have. That all of the apostles' teaching that are infallible and errant are here. Do we have every word Paul ever spoke? No. Do we have everything James ever said? No. Do we have every word Jesus ever said? Of course we don't. He lived 33 years on this earth. He said thousands, millions of words. But we have everything God wanted us to have. Which is why when we come together as a modern church, whether someone's teaching a small group lesson, whether someone believes God has laid something on their heart, which is a good thing, or whether a pastor stands and preaches the weekly message when we gather for corporate worship, everything the person says, man or woman, regardless of their position, must be weighed according to the truth of God's Word. This is why I think it's interesting that verse 28 says what it does. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Look down at verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits, notice it's a lowercase s. He's talking about the soul, the spirit of the person. The spirits of prophets are subject to to prophets. In other words, no one gets to say, because I am pastor, whatever I say goes. In fact, if you ever find yourself in a church where the pastor is beyond accountability or beyond being questioned, you found a cult. Leave. Leave. No one ever gets to say they are above the authority of God's Word and the authority of the spiritual leadership within the church. Now, now, it's interesting about these rules. They're connected to a reason. What's the reason? Well, after the rules, we get the reason. He says it three ways. For the building up, that all may learn, that all may be encouraged. In, in other words, you may have slipped in 10 minutes late. You may be new to the church. This is your first time. I'd love to meet you at the conclusion of the service. You, you, you may feel like of all the fringe people here, Pastor, I'm the most fringe. God's Word says that every single one of you who came to worship today and every one of you listening online deserves to be encouraged and built up when the Word of God is spoken in worship. Anything that is done in the church should be done so that all will be encouraged, that all may learn, that all may grow. And by the way, this is why you have to have order. This is why you have to have systems. This is why there has to be proper, decent planning for worship. Tomorrow morning, if you pour yourself a cup of coffee, open your Bible at your kitchen table, maybe out on your back porch, or maybe at your cubicle at where you work before you start your day and boot up your computer, whatever it is, when you have a personal time with the Lord, there's no need for order. There's no need for consideration of other people, I should say. You may pray, you may read a passage, you may use the camp method that I've given you, you may use other methods to study the Bible, but in that moment, it's just you and the Lord, so there's no risk of someone else being left out, of someone else being confused, of someone else not being uh, sensitive to their needs. And in that, you're not going to pre-print an order of worship for your personal quiet time. If you do, you've got a problem. 
You'd be hard to live with if you make a pre-printed personal worship order for your personal quiet time. Now, I mean, you may have a devotional plan that you follow. You may be reading a book that helps you. Those are good tools and good resources. I would say be heavy on Scripture and light on the words of others. But certainly devotions can guide our minds and help us. But that's for you and the Lord. However, when the church comes together, there has to be order so that every person in the room is in the best possible position to glean from God's Word what God has for you today, which speaks to the root. What's the root in all this? Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 32. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I've never studied the subject of peace more than I've been studying it. A week from tomorrow, I'm preaching at the Southern Baptist Convention in front of many, many, many pastors from all over the nation. I'm quite honored by the opportunity. They've asked me to preach about the beatitude where Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. I believe it it will be a prophetic word for those men and women there. Because I see so much division and backbiting in denominationalism. I want to tell all of them, tweet less and pastor more. In other words, I want to say to them, our God is reflected most when we walk into situations of contention and confusion and we bring peace. Peacemaking is not peacekeeping. I'm not talking about appeasement. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about going into a situation and using the gift of the gospel to bring peace and creating people in one accord, in unity toward one end. It is so needed in our world today. Look at the lack of peace. Have you noticed how it seems as though our headlines indicate that most people live on the ragged edge of going off and making terribly violent and angry decisions at the slightest interruption of their plan or their day or the slightest infringement on their so-called rights. People are so quick to be harsh and angry and to use vile language and to lash out and to go on the offensive and to assume a defensive posture. When the Scripture says, our God is a God of peace. You know how a woman or a man brings peace into any situation? Wake up and spend time with the God of peace before you scroll on your phone for 30 minutes. Be centered in who he is and remind yourself that he's got you, he's faithful, he fights your battles, he goes before you, and therefore when you walk into a situation and people are losing their minds, you have the peace of God in you. Now, that in and of itself should translate to our worship. Our worship should be one that's done in accord. It should not be chaos or conflict or divisions. There should be peace because it is a reflection of the character of God. So whether you find yourself in a small group Bible study, whether you're leading seventh graders, whether you're leading adults, whether you're having a conversation around a kitchen table, or you may find yourself asking to be sharing a testimony or sing a song in a worship service, always fight for that which brings peace and clarity, unity, and edification. That's a word about words in worship. Now, ladies, secondly, 
there's a word to women in worship. It's a hard verse for some people. It will be a hard verse for some of you to hear. I made a promise to you, I will never, ever gloss over the hard parts of the Bible. I won't do it because I love the Word of God. I believe in it. And when I explain this to you, I think you'll see God's wisdom in it. Paul does something here that some find very uncomfortable. Look at the second part of verse 33. I'll begin at the beginning of verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. You ever have some of those verses you're like, could we take that out? Like, is that... What do we do with that? Like, I don't want my lost friend to see that one. I'm not yet. She's not ready for that. Well, one of the things you have to remember is that God's Word doesn't move to the left or to the right, and there's always wisdom behind His Word. So let me just start by relieving the tension. There are two unhealthy extremes in a verse like this. One unhealthy extreme is to say, well, this verse means all women in all worship services, must remain silent at all times. That would condemn the entire worship set a few moments ago. Did you hear the gifted, beautiful voices on stage? And did you notice there are both male and female up on stage leading? And you know why? Because we want the worship team to be a reflection of the people we're trying to lead into worship. This is not a concert. This is a participatory worship service. And so when you come to church at the meal, you'll see women singing. You may hear one of the members of our worship team praying a prayer. You, at times, depending on the emphasis or what we're doing, may see someone live or on video, a man or a woman sharing a testimony about what God is doing. And, and, and you may say, well, Pastor, that's you taking a modern view of this verse. Well, I would just humbly suggest to those who might hold this position, most of you would not, I would humbly suggest to you the word itself would contradict if this were true. Back in chapter 11, when we were dealing with the whole head covering thing about women, if you didn't hear those messages, you ought to go back. They're a lot of fun, but you ought to go back and listen to them. But one of the things Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven five, 5, same book now, same letter, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, He's not talking about at home. He's talking about in a church. For every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, you're not in luck today if you want me to explain the whole head covering thing. I did that, podcast me. But the point is, Paul assumed that women would be praying and sharing in the church. So, so if 11, chapter 11, verse 5 is true, then certainly this verse can't mean that there's no time ever for a woman inside of the body of Christ to share her hearts or feelings or what God may be leading her. The second reason I would say would come a little bit later in the same Bible, in the book of 1 Timothy or Titus, Paul says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. Notice, they are to teach what is good. So, so there is this desire from Paul, the same author of 1 Corinthians, that women have a role and a call in teaching, especially 
teaching younger women how they are to be women. What does an older woman bring to the table in teaching a younger woman that a pastor can never bring? Oh, I don't know. Maybe she's a woman. She's been there. She's been a wife. She's mothered children. She's been a sister-in-law. She's been a daughter for longer. She's been a mother for longer, an aunt for longer. She's served in more places. And so she's more equipped. When, when, when Paul is young in his faith, and he's encouraging Timothy, rather, who's young in his faith, he tells Timothy, Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. Later, it's not on the screen, but later in the same book, 1 Timothy, he says, remember what you were taught when you were young. Well, Timothy had no father to teach him. His father was not a Christian and was, not, was a Gentile. So what Paul is saying is, remember the word of God that was lived out and taught to you by your mother and your grandmother. Well, if we silence women in all places, at all times, in all church services, this can never happen. Finally, when Paul was a brand new Christian, he got saved and started preaching awful quick but he didn't quite fully understand the wholeness of the gospel. So there were two believers, a husband and a wife, named Priscilla and Aquila. I think everybody that gets married ought to pick two names that rhyme. It's just easier that way. Priscilla and Aquila. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, a wife and a husband, heard him, they took him aside. They did not embarrass him. They did not lord over him. They took him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. So Paul's called out. He's passionately saved, but he's not fully ready to understand it all until they get a hold of him and they explain to him. So I don't believe it would be right to take this one verse and construct from it a theology that says in no time and in no place should a woman ever share or speak or use her gifts. I don't believe that's what Paul is saying here. There is another extreme. It's the more liberal extreme. It would be in the extreme to say, well, this is one of those verses inserted later. There are some liberal theologians that say, oh, well, this wasn't a part of the original text. Chauvinist men added stuff like this in. Again, I have no reason to believe that. Every textual variant shows that it was a part of the flow of Paul's speech. And then others say, oh, well, this is just in Corinth. Just in Corinth, the women were so out of control and and, and so disruptive, Paul just had to set them down and tell them to be quiet. Again, here's the problem with that. Paul says, and I read, this is exactly what it says, as in all the churches of the saints. So this is not specifically Corinth. And then Paul takes the truth back to the order of creation when he references the law. Now, when Paul says law, He's referring to parts of the Old Testament, not just the law of Moses. And this is a reference, obviously, to the creative order given to us in Genesis 2. First man, and then from man, God created woman. And then when the fall came, part of the curse upon man would be that work would be hard for him. And the curse upon woman would be that childbearing would be painful. I recently watched my bird dog give birth to beautiful puppies. It was neat to watch. And uh, she didn't hurt a bit. She's an animal. She's not under the curse. She has no pain in birth. But every woman in this room knows 
that it is painful in bringing children to the world. And so there are curses in both directions. And because of Eve's deception, because of her bringing deception and then Adam's subsequent fall in not leading her and not standing for what is right, both of them were cursed and each of them had individual curses that they had to deal with. And so while God's created order was that man was to protect and provide and woman was to serve and to help, because of sin, that submissive role is accentuated. And so the scripture teaches us that inside of the church gathered, the role of spiritual leadership should reflect in the church family your personal family. And the Bible clearly teaches that in the family, the husband and the father is to be the spiritual leader of the home. And since the family was instituted before the church, the family of God follows the family of creation. And therefore, in the church, spiritually qualified men are to exercise the authority of guiding and teaching the Bible when the whole church is gathered in corporate worship. Paul told Timothy very clearly, this is what he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, whether she is to remain quiet. What is he referring to? He's referring to the authority that a pastor or an elder has. If you were to go down our children's hall or go over to our student center this morning, you would see many gifted women operating a lot of authority to keep those little hoodlums in line all around through there. You would recognize that there are women right now calling down your sixth-grade boy or your sixth-grade girl, calling down and bringing that two-year-old and helping them go to the restroom and getting their snack and reading their Bible study. And so if you were to leave this room and you were to go to the rooms to the left or to the right, all around our small groups, you would see husbands and wives teaching the Word of God, men and women expressing that. But when the church gathers... And there is one person placed to explain the word of God as the authority of the church as affirmed, called, and held accountable by the church. That is to be done by a biblically qualified man who serves in the role of pastor or elder. Those words are used interchangeably. And so, in our church, for example, our pastors or elders are men. But it's not just any man. It's men who read the breach meet the biblical qualifications. One final word about this that I think is really important. Number one, we ought to always celebrate the gifts of our girls and women. It bothers me to see men use verses like this to almost celebrate what women are not allowed or permitted to do. When actually the first missionary I ever learned about was named Lottie Moon. The second one was Annie Armstrong. And throughout my spiritual formation, there is no doubt an incredible, immeasurable amount of impact that happened by women who love the Lord Jesus and use their gifts. Also, this command to be silent, ladies, is not just for you. Look at verse 28 and look at verse 30. There are other people that are to remain silent. Not only, not only are women not to pastor a church, most men will never pastor a church. And look what it says in verse 28. 
The Bible says in verse 28 these words, and I'll read them to you. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them, that's male or female, keep silent. And then look at verse 30. Verse 30, the Bible says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So if God raises up this person to speak, be silent and listen to them. If you believe that God has delivered to you a message through a spiritual gift of a tongue and you utter that gift and no one interprets it, be silent. So the scripture tells us that there are times when all of us are called to silence. The final thing is to men. You think this verse is about women, but it's actually about husbands. Look what Paul says in verse 33. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Now look at verse 35. If there is anything they desire to learn, desiring to learn is not a bad thing. This is not interested in separating people by gender because of the fear that a woman with knowledge is a threat. No, not at all. He says, if they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Perhaps churches that get this wrong get it wrong not because women are clamoring for recognition or to operate outside their office, but first and foremost, because husbands aren't leading and guiding at home. Listen, in this room right now, there are some of you who are sitting alone or you're sitting with a man that you dearly love, but he struggles to be your spiritual leader. Do you know what I found about most women that I come in contact with who love the Lord Jesus? They, 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 they not only fully embrace the idea that God wants them to have a spiritual leader, they would love nothing more than to spend their life with a man who's not perfect, they're fully aware of our problems and our struggles, but who follows the Lord so passionately that the overflow of his walk is spiritual leadership. It doesn't mean that every man has a gift to teach. Some of you are saying, well, pastor, that's not me. I'm not articulate. I'm not a feelings guy. I don't know how to talk about things. There's nowhere in the scripture that says to be the spiritual leader of your home, you have to have the gift of teaching or preaching. That's not true. But it is true that every man who is called of Christ to follow him is to follow him in such a way that the overflow of your walk with the Lord cuts the wake in a wicked world for your family to follow. And as we do this together, it is those spiritually mature and spiritually secure men who are not threatened at all by the gifts of women. We celebrate how God has raised them up and we allow God to use them to the fullest of their potential. And then Paul closes with a word of warning. A word of warning to all of us about worship. Look what he says in verse 36. Or was it from, the word, was it from you that the word of God came? Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or you, the only ones it has reached? Those are rhetorical questions. Paul's getting back to the issue of arrogance. Look what he says in verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If you've been with me for several months, you know this is a phrase that's come up before. Paul's dealing with some people who've been disruptive in worship, not because they're mature, but because they're immature, both men and women. And he says, 
If you think you're so spiritual, remember I'm an apostle. This is what Paul says. And what I'm saying is far and again more authoritative than your words, your revelations, your tongues, or your prophetic speech. And we know this because it happens earlier in the book. In chapter 3, verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise of this age, let him become a fool that he may be made wise. In chapter 8, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. What's the sign of arrogance? Well, we all know it. You've either been arrogant before, we probably all have at some point in our life, or you come across somebody who's arrogant. One of the telltale signs of somebody full of themselves is that they think they know everything. And everybody in the room has looked at that teenager and say, sweetheart, you don't know everything. And then they say in response, but you don't understand. And then we say, yes, I do. In fact, I've been there, done that, made the same mistakes you're about to make, lived through the consequences of it, and I'm trying to keep you from going down the path I went down. And they don't get it. And then if you do your job, somewhere around 20, they become your friend again. That's the way it works. But the point is, is that you can be arrogant at 55, 72, just as you can be arrogant at 17. And one of the telltale signs of somebody who's arrogant is that they're not teachable, They find themselves to be above or beyond being held accountable, and they don't listen. And this is what Paul says to these people leading these chaotic worship services. If you think you're spiritual, remember I'm an apostle. And then he gives a threat. He says in verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized in the army, the military. All of our branches, you have a rank. In your formal dress, you wear your rank. It's right there. One of the quickest ways to lose your rank is not to obey or recognize a man or a woman who outranks you. And in the heat of battle, rank matters. It cannot be subjectivity. Well, I like Kim, or I'm going to do what she says. No, no, no. You obey the person who's over you. This keeps people alive. And the way it's supposed to work is that you achieve a certain amount of knowledge and experience and accomplishment per each rank. So the highest rank officer should, in most cases, be at least in the best position to make the best decision. Now, in a broken world, that's not always the case, but that's how armies, that's how armies order themselves. And Paul is basically saying, If you don't recognize my rank as an apostle, for you and me would be the word of God. If we don't let the word of God outrank whatever rank we think we have, we'll lose our stripes awful quickly. Which is why it's a beautiful summary statement at the end of the chapter, and it's where I'll end. He says these words in verse 39. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. I have not condemned it one time in this series. But all things should be done decently and in order. If I were going to put all that into three concise statements, here they are. The people of God need clarity. Always fight for clarity. The gifts of God are never the enemy. Don't be afraid of the spiritual gifts. And finally, the worship of God 
should be done orderly. Now close your Bible. I want to end by asking you not to think about us. You're in this beautiful room and we're in this worship service. If you'll just stay with me for just a moment. You're not in control of this room. There's so much in our church you're not in control of. In fact, I have become deeply convinced in this fall you're going to hear some really cool stuff that's coming down the pipe, but I'm working on it this summer. But I've come become deeply convinced that the sweet spot of church is about 300 to 1,000. That's why I don't want to build bigger buildings. I want to build more churches, more campuses. I get so excited when I listen to Dylan talk about what's going on at Lake Cooley. He's the pastor up there. Or Adam, when he's talking on. And when Dylan and Adam talk about their struggles and their victories at Lake Cooley or at Woodruff, it sounds exactly like what I went through 15 years ago here. And it makes my heart beat fast. I'm not against large numbers of people, and I'm so grateful for where we are. And I believe there's room for us to reach more people here. But I I do believe the kingdom is not only grand, it's small. And I do like the thought of making sure that we never hoard the resources of God, but that we release men and women who are gifted to go reach people in communities that we are not a part of. At the same time, even in those situations, the authority you have the most in your life is the authority God has given you over your heart. You control you. And so even though this series has been about wading through the gift of tongues and understanding the debates and the differences, celebrating what we appreciate and affirm in our charismatic brothers, understanding what our understanding of Scripture, loving the Word of God clearly taught, clearly interpreted, clearly given to us. If this series doesn't end with you asking a simple question about your personal worship, then I'm afraid we might have gotten smarter, but we haven't become more obedient. So so here's the question to end. What about you, your worship, your desire for a clear word, your gifts? Is there order in your spiritual life? Let me tell you one of the greatest recipes to being lukewarm. Kind of keep it between the ditches. Grab a devotional book occasionally. Bow your head over a meal. Pray when something goes wrong. Do your best to get in here on two wheels on Sunday and get a word from DJ. I just see so many people, and that's the track record of their walk. And honestly, if that's your rhythm and your pattern, then wherever you are today, that's about where you were five years ago. There has to be an order that says, tomorrow I'm going to be in my Bible. Tomorrow I'm going to pray. Tomorrow, I'm going to take a moment and personally reflect and worship the Lord. And tomorrow night, when I look at the inventory of my Monday, where I have failed the Lord, I'm going to deal with it. If I failed my spouse, I'm going to deal with it. If I need to have a conversation with my son or my daughter, I'm going to deal with it. I challenged one of my sons yesterday to have his quiet time every day this summer. And I'm going to Hold him accountable and help him with that. Not lord it over him. Not make him feel guilty. Not bribe him. I can't make him love Jesus. But he's got to have that guidance and that encouragement in his life. Because i got to have it in my life. And, and, And ultimately, when we order our lives, it creates margin for joy and passion and excitement. 
I don't find that my order and my plan and my spiritual recipe for growth sucks passion out of my daily walk. It actually inserts passion in it. So while our culture celebrates summer as let loose and let go, while you enjoy a different rhythm during the summer, some of you may, order your spiritual life. And as you do, what you'll find is that the God of order will fill you with the passions and emotions and desire and that your rhythm feeds the organic nature of a God who spiritually does what you can not 